Hey, everybody. Well, Coach D's got a little bit of laryngitis today, but no worries. The show must go on. We are talking to Emily Lynch Capelli today. She is an amazing person. She's been a professional songwriter, a touring musician, worship leader. She's a great new friend of mine. You don't want to miss this conversation. Welcome to The Last 10%. Your host, Dallas Burnett, dives into incredible conversations that will inspire you to finish well and finish strong. Listen as guests share their journeys and valuable advice on living in the last 10%. If you are a leader, a coach, a business owner, or someone looking to level up, you are in the right place. Remember, you can give 90% effort and make it a long way, but it's finding out how to unlock the last 10% that makes all the difference in your life, your relationships, and your work. Now, here's Dallas. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Last 10%. I am Dallas Burnett. I'm in Thrive Studios, sitting in my 1905 Koch Brothers Barber chair. More importantly, talking to Emily Lynch Capelli today, professional songwriter, has an album, has featured Vince Gill on it, has had a really, really well-known artist just pick up her latest song, which we'll get to in just a minute. But man, we're just so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Last 10%, Emily. So honored to be here. Awesome. So we just want to hear, I would love for you to tell the listeners, you know, you know, what was your process and what was it like when you actually got into songwriting? You've written with some great songwriters. You've got some great songs out. Cut your own albums. You're an artist as well. Tell us the process that went from like, you know, nothing, not really aware of the music business to professional songwriter. How did that kind of weave in and out? Thinking back to when I first started writing songs, I was always creative. And, you know, it's funny to just think back how everybody had influences. I dated a guy who wrote poetry and that like influenced me to write. And then, you know, in college, I taught myself, a, my dad taught me a few chords on the guitar and I literally couldn't play the songs I wanted to play because I couldn't play a B minor or whatever it was. So I was like, well, darn, I'm going to start writing songs with the chords I do know. <laughs> so, you know, that got me going. And then, I remember the first song I wrote, I showed it to my parents. I was in high school and, and my dad was like, well, that's cool. That's good. But you're going to have to write a lot more if you want to be like Dolly Parton. <laughs> anyway, I played sports. I did a lot of things. So kind of, you know, dabbled here and there with songwriting. But it wasn't till my senior year, I was at Clemson. I was a communications major. I was trying to decide what I was going to do when I graduated and talked to our internship coordinator. And he's like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, you know, I really want to sing and make music, which of course, you know, that's, it takes a lot of courage to even say that out loud. So that was the first time I was like, okay, what are we going to do here? And he hooked me up with a internship with a local studio in Greenville at the time. It was called OMG Entertainment. OMG. Yeah. Edwin McCain's group there. Yeah. Edwin McCain's studio and Gene Krasilic um, was the president of the little label. They had a band called Chasen. It was a Christian band that was doing pretty good. So, I mean, I literally went and took out the trash. I did all the grunt work and Gene, you know, I got to know him and he started giving me more responsibility to listen through music, you know, on MySpace and all the other platforms where local bands were putting out music and to just kind of sift through CDs and stuff that people had brought to him. And um, so I got more experience with the business through that. 
he did allow me to use the studio to record a few songs, which, oh my gosh, they're so bad. But I got that first experience, you know. Anyway, I talked with him a lot and he was like, you know, I have a friend in Atlanta who's a producer who likes to work with developing artists. You know, his name was Dan Hannon. I graduated from Clemson. I moved to Charlotte because my parents were there. I tried to find a big girl job that didn't work out. So I ended up moving there and working part-time at a church leading worship there and had met Dan, who's in Atlanta, a producer, and had a couple of just meetings with him. And he started giving me some homework for how to develop my craft and how to develop as an artist. I was over here in Charlotte developing as a performer, as an artist, as a musician, leading worship for kids with high schoolers. So, you know, learning how to be on a stage, learning how to play with a band, like not a good band, but still <laughs> just learning how to talk. And that was going on. And, and I only recognize all this in hindsight, truly. I don't really know that I knew all this was happening at the time, but I was developing over here, making some money. That developed into a full-time job. So I did have some good income coming in. And then traveling to Atlanta and writing songs with Dan. And he was, we were talking on the phone. I mean, it was daily. And he was challenging me to write a song every day. That's hard. That's actually hard. You know, there's some days it just doesn't come. I mean, that's a disciplined practice, you know, a song a day. It was definitely growing just at a faster pace than normal because I had at the time I that was my sole focus I mean I had nothing else except for music and my job and I was able to live at home at that time so I wasn't it was kind of sad I really just didn't have much of a life so I was going home and writing <laughs> I would just love to dive in there a little bit when you were doing this you know you said I just really didn't have a life at the time I'm just going home every night and writing music but did it feel like that to you or did it feel like invigorating to be developing your craft? I mean, or is it like some days there are grind and some days are great? Or it was like, no, nah, every day, even bad days were good. How, what was your mindset in that period? Oh man, no, bad days were great. It was, um, <laughs> I, I was just soaking it up because, you know, I grew up in a home. We all love music. My dad played by ear, guitar, piano, sang. My mom played piano, sang. I wasn't a student of music. We listened to whatever was on the radio. I didn't really know what a good songwriter was. I, I never studied songs, you know, and Dan was sending me albums. I mean, he was, I just dove hard into Patty Griffin, who's one of my favorite artists, started really recognizing like what great songs were. And that is just as important as writing. It may be more important is listening to good stuff and really, you know, growing in that in your taste and learning how to put your story. I mean, Dan Hannon was just such a critical part of my development and growth. And he would not only challenge me, but he would encourage. I knew he believed in me. So that lit a fire under me for sure. That's super important, though, when you're starting out, especially in the music business, the dream industry of the music business, because there's plenty of people, I mean, like layers and layers of people that will come in and dash your hopes and dreams and just like pour cold water on anything you've done in terms of creative process. So to have somebody that's backing you, that's developing you in your corner, it's like throwing gasoline on the fire. It just keeps you going and kind of keeps you trudging through, the, through some of the mess, you know, in the industry. It's a gift and it's part of Dan's calling is just that he just loves working with developing acts and he's got a gift for it. So I'm just thankful that 
you know, our paths crossed and he took time with me and we'd kind of hit it off. Just, we enjoyed working together. We were good. You know, it's in music, somebody, my husband makes fun of me for saying this, but I remember somebody said this and it's so true. Like half of it's about, you know, writing a good song together or producing good music together, whatever. But really half is just about the hang. (laughs) (laughs) How much do we enjoy hanging out with each other? You know? That's so true. Isn't it true though? Because I mean, it's at the end of the day, you just kind of hit it off with certain people and you just enjoy it. And you have this bond and connection through music, through songwriting, but it makes it so much easier when you're just hanging out, just enjoying each other and then get to write some songs too. It's like, who doesn't like this? What's not to like? This is awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. That's cool. I like that. So he pushes you and you co-write with him and you're moving forward. What was the point where you were like, did you get to the point where you're like, I'm at a place in my development where I think I'm ready to take it to the next level. What did that look like after you've been meeting with Dan and going forward? We recorded a a little EP album. It was just a Christian-ish kind of Christian country type deal, five songs. That was a good kind of like foundation for me. And then he started putting me with other artists in Atlanta. We started co-writing. So I would go to Atlanta and have, I mean, it, it was insane. I would have like three hour blocks of different writers. And it was just like speed dating, you know, or I don't know the right analogy, but it was just speed development. And, and we wrote toward a debut full length album was what we were writing toward for me. It wasn't trying to be a songwriter at that point. It was, you know, we're trying to be an artist and do a record. Micah Dalton, Nathan Angelo, Ryan Horn, trying to think like a lot of local Atlanta guys who are still my good friends today. And then Dan and I continued to write and we wrote a whole first full length album. I was able to finance that myself. And, you know, again, just living at home and working, but also doing this on the side. It was just really a cool experience. But it wasn't until after we made that album, that's just debut self-titled album that was amazing. But I felt like looking back on it, it was I was being held up by a lot of other great writers and musicians and everything. It was my first experience truly recording like with band and all of that. And so then that, it really gave me a love for co-writing and songs in general. And so then I, the Nashville story is kind of a evolution of a lot of other pieces that came together, but you want me to go there? I can just dive in. (laughs) I'm trying to think. So I had Dan, you know, I had all these Atlanta guys and then I had, my mom's family is from Sumter, South Carolina. So small town Sumter, you know, there were two guys that had made it big in music out of Sumter. And one was Rob Crosby. He's an artist, songwriter, had number one songs with Martina McBride. And my family knew him and he was, anyway, I'm not really afraid to call people. So I picked up the phone (laughs) and I called Rob Crosby and I said, or maybe I emailed him. I can't remember, but I was like, you know, I'm going to come to Nashville. I had justified a trip because I was like, a guy from high school lived there and I was going to, he had a place I could stay. And then there was, Dan had set me up with a couple of guys and then Rob, I was going to meet with him. And then, um, anyway, it was just kind of this, okay, we're going to Nashville. And Rob was really the most professional guy that I got the chance to talk with. And we had breakfast that first meeting and he was like, well, let me hear some music. And I, I showed him some music. I think this is a lesson of like, you got to have good songs and you got to have something, some raw talent to be able to get in rooms with people. But then you also just have to like take the step of calling and 
seeing what happens. And so he was like, well, let's write. We hit it off and we wrote um, a lot. And then he's like, well, I want you to meet so-and-so. And then it, that's how it happens in Nashville. Just starts snowballing. So then I, you know, started meeting with other people and they know people. And then really how it gets is to where, well, if my friend's telling me about you, you must be good. So I'm going to sit with you. It's a small world. It's like this community. Once you break in, it's like everybody knows everybody. It's unbelievable. The networks that in that town, it's incredible. And I like it because when you talk about it, you're talking about it like um, you are ambitious in terms of calling Rob and you're like, I'm going to take the step. But it's not like you did that when you moved to Charlotte and you're like, hey, I'm leading worship with this, you know, at this church with the kids department. I think I'll call Rob. It was like you took an amazing step. You took amazing jumps in your career. You were going and doing the work way beforehand, going to Atlanta. You had already produced a whole album of songs and worked on your craft for all this time. And then at that point where you felt like, hey, my stuff is definitely maturing. I'm maturing as an artist, as a writer. All right, now I'm gonna call Rob, you know, so it's I love how that went. And so I had, you know, totally like tracking with everything you're saying, because my experience was very similar. I started playing guitar in high school and was inspired by some artists that were just rock solid songwriters. And you just kind of and I totally had no life, you know, and sit at home and and write songs on I would have no problem doing that on a Friday night whatsoever. It's very cool. So you tap into this network in Nashville. You're meeting with Rob. Then he introduced you all his friends and you start building this network in Nashville. How does that progress? It was like, you know, Dan had, I knew that I wanted to meet with some publishers and I wanted to meet with ASCAP was my PRO. So my performance rights organization at that point, I hadn't gotten paid for anything, but I was a member. <laughs> my dad signed me up when I was 16. Hilarious. Oh my gosh. How about that? So, you know, I had some understanding of how all that worked and I was learning about co-writing and learning about how you can, other people can record your songs. And I enjoyed being an artist, but I really love the idea of not having to be the face of the song. And I am an artist, but I just, when it came to the commercial thing, I found that a bit exhausting. And so at that point, I think I was having some revelation of like, okay, this is, this is a huge commitment and I want to have a family. I want to be married. I'm a homebody at heart, you know? And I was just kind of like, eh, I don't know how far I want to dive into being the artist, but I, you know, I would love to write songs and be in this industry. So one of the key things that happened as I got to know people was ASCAP, Leanne Phelan. She's a big, awesome lady in Nashville. She was the leader of I can't even think of what her title was, but she was a big person at ASCAP. She had just gotten that job because BMI and ASCAP are like the two big PROs and BMI was crushing it. Let us talk one second about what that is for our listeners that are not familiar with the business of music. When you say BMI and ASCAP and PRO, what you're saying is BMI and ASCAP actually are the ones that if a song is played on the radio or on Spotify or anything like that, Anywhere in the world, that payment is sent to these entities, and these entities then distribute those funds to the artists that they represent, their cuts. So it's almost like the pay. So if you're a songwriter, you're very interested in these organizations because these are essentially the people that cut your check. If your song goes on the billboard charts and it's number five or number two or number one, that money doesn't just show up in your mailbox. It goes through these two large organizations, and then it pushes down to the actual writer. 
Yeah. CSAC is another one. It's a little bit smaller, but um, yeah, so they all have different, they're very much the same. I feel like they ebb and flow, but the percentages of the payouts, you know, might ebb and flow and BMI might give a little more one year, but ASCAP might give a little more one year. They have different leadership come, you know, it's business. So at the time I was with ASCAP and I had done an artist showcase and my friend, I had a friend who had done a BMI showcase and I had gone to the BMI showcase and it was like, so much better. They were really talking about the artist. They were playing it up. There was like press. It was really good. The ASCAP one just felt like such a letdown. I was a little bit of a fiery, not and not disrespectful or anything, but I was just like, I had some courage, I guess. And I was vocal about how disappointed I was and that I was considering jumping ship and going to BMI. And Tracy Gershon, she's another just amazing manager. She's managed tons of bands in Nashville, Talent Finder, worked with Faith Hill. And anyway, she was managing my friend. I talked to her and she's like, well, before you jump ship, why don't you meet with Leanne? She just got this job and she's really has a good vision to turn ASCAP around. So I started meeting with Leanne and she became a champion for me. So she started a program for ASCAP, young unsigned ASCAP writers that were identified by publishers or, you know, people in the industry and is called the GPS program. And I forgot what that stood for GPS. It was something, but it, you meet with two publishers each month. It's like you have an initial meeting and then you have a follow-up meeting and the publishers are all on board to meet with you and give you good feedback. And anyway, it's this whole, whole setup thing for a year. So I was asked to be a part of that program. It's funny, the other people in my class, Haley Witters, she's an artist, country artist who's just put out a couple of records. She was in my GPS class. Ryan Hurd, he was a good friend of mine. We were in that class together. There was another guy, oh, I'm blanking on his name, but he's an artist now. So anyway, it's just really cool to see where everybody went because there was such good talent in that class. But Anyway, that was a huge jump off for me because I continued to meet more people through that. You know, I got big meetings that I probably wouldn't have been able to get otherwise with, you know, the bigger names, Sony, Warner Chapel, all the people and go to shows with people, just build relationships. And so, yeah, I want to take a second, though, and just share with the listeners, like, I don't think most people realize this. I think that people have assumed that the music business is like you just put something out on YouTube or are you you know, win American Idol and all of a sudden you're this, you know, the next biggest thing. And they hear and they see these artists that come out and they're like, quote unquote, overnight successes. And the people in the business know and have seen them working it out for over a decade. It's unbelievable the amount of work and effort to become a quote, overnight success. And like, just hearing you talk about the process and all the effort you put in behind the scenes, we're not even talking about writing at this point. We're talking about networking and we're talking about understanding the the structure of the business and we're talking about finding champions in the industry and getting in front of publishers and navigating all these these circles that you're doing for years i have a lot of respect for you on that and other artists because it's just i don't think most people understand how hard and how much work it is to break in and break through like that i never moved to nashville which is probably a lot of people would say was my biggest mistake but you know, we all have our own path, but it's interesting because in those days I was writing with Nicole Gallion and I remember sitting with her and she's written most of that Miranda Lambert album. But I mean, I remember writing with her at that time. She was asking me how to do an artist thing and how to put out a record because I had done that. 
I remember her saying, you know, we just don't have a lot of money. How do we do, you know, and now she's like <laughs> just killing it. And so it's just cool to see Haley Witters. I mean, I remember talking to her and, you know, they call Nashville a 10 year town. I feel like it is nothing short of that. It takes time. You know, even Maren Morris, like I remember meeting her in a publishing house and she was writing for other artists. And then all of a sudden she decided she wanted to do something for herself. Ryan Heard, he was not an artist. He just was a great songwriter, great friend. He co-wrote one of the songs on my album with me. But, you know, I remember when he decided he wanted to be an artist. And I mean, it's years and years and years after, you know, when people are like, well, maybe I'll put out my own stuff or whatever. And then all of a sudden you're hearing them on the radio, but they've been grinding for years. Now you've got this album now. You've got Vince Gill featured on. How do you get Vince Gill on your album? I mean, this is incredible. God is so good. Just all the networking. It's so fun to think back on this. You know, so the way that the publishing world works in Nashville, really all of the worlds, but you're, hey, I think you would work really well with so-and-so. Hey, I think you would work really well with so-and-so. So you're, you're getting set up with people that you've never met. And it's such a normal thing. It would be, it's not very normal in the real world, but for co-writing, you know, you say, oh, hey, I'm Emily. What's your name? You know, you talk about your, whatever's going on. You kind of try to make a connection and then you write a song. <laughs> Hopefully that's the goal. So anyway, I got to do that with a ton of amazing people. And one of them ended up being um, Vince Gill's daughter. And so we kind of hit it off. And the first, I remember the first day she was like, the publisher called us and she said, um, hey, all of our rooms are full. Do y'all have somewhere else you can write? Which if I would have lived there, she could have just come over to my house or whatever, but I didn't live there. So she's like, hey, my house is being renovated. Let's just meet at my dad's house. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, meet at your dad's house. Okay. So yeah, we met over there and we wrote a song up in one of the rooms and she was married, had, had her own house, had a kid. And anyway, we come downstairs to get some water and Amy Grant's in the kitchen. It was wild. I mean, I was just talking with her in the kitchen and Vince came in and I had actually talked to Vince on the phone through another friend because when we were dreaming about this, you know, collaboration, you know, I mean, the connections are coming from everywhere. But I got to hug his neck and he was just sitting on the couch playing guitar. And I was like, hey, I'm Emily. We talked and we, you know, he gave me a big hug and we just chatted for a moment. But so, so cool. And Jenny and I wrote a few more times. And actually, when Amy was opening for, I think it was Stephen Curtis Chapman here in Greenville, Jenny got my husband and I some tickets and we got to go backstage. And Amy was like, oh, Emily, I thought that was you. Hey, and Amy gave me a big hug. And I'm like, Oh my goodness, my like 12 year old self is dying. <laughs> that is, I know. Isn't that the truth though? You do feel like that. I was in school with Lee Bryce. We were actually playing together in college. And so one day I'm going over to his apartment. I show up, we're practicing for this thing. We're going to play downtown or whatever. And he'd been telling me for a while. He's like, man, I'm going to go to Nashville. I'm going to go to Nashville. I'm like, all right, man, whatever. Just you're a junior. Let's just, let's just graduate and we'll go. That We'll all go, you know, let's do it. Let's do it. Well, I show up at his apartment, his roommate's sitting there, and he's like, uh, Lee's not here. I'm like, well, I can see that. All his stuff's gone. I was like, Where, did he move across town? Did he get better rent? You know, whatever. He's like, nah, he left. He's, I said, well, where'd he go? He's like, he left. He went to Nashville last night and just packed up his car and drove to Nashville. I was like, it's like mid-semester, bro. Are you serious? He's like, yeah, he's done. He's gone to Nashville. And so I lost connection. You know, I didn't have a you know, cell phone for him or anything like that. And then we reconnected about four or five years later, and he had just signed a um, songwriting deal with Arista Records. 
And then about a year and a half after that, he, he was able to get his own record deal. He came in tour and he was open up for some female artist. And he came back to Clemson and Little John. And it was, they had just cut Little John in half. So it was only just a few thousand, like maybe a couple thousand people at the most. And he's playing the opening act for some female artist. I can't remember. But anyway, I emailed him and said, bro, I got to come and see you. And he, he did the same thing. He was like, all right, come on up. So we hopped in the car, drove up and saw him. And he brought us backstage and was like, hey, man. And we were sitting in the back in the girls' women's basketball locker room hanging out before the show. It's so much fun. But you're just sitting there like, this is the best. This is awesome. So you're in Vince Gill's house. You're talking to him. He ends up you know, doing this song with you, like features is featured on your song on this album. This album is, this is your second, this would be your second album. Did you fund that as well? Or did you go through another label or, or how did that work? Well, this is a crazy situation. So my first album was released in 2011, my self-titled album that I did with Dan. Between 2011 and 2015, those years, I was really, really in the Nashville world. And I was writing for other people, but also, I mean, songs that I love. I hit a point where I just felt like I was, I had had a lot of almost, you know, I had a lot of songs on hold and fell through or whatever. And I was, okay, I had gotten married in 2012. So I was living in Greenville. You know, I felt like it wasn't moving as fast as I wanted it to. You know, I wasn't having any major cuts and I had been asked to lead worship at some stuff. Like I'd always led worship at women's events. You know, it's just to be able to play guitar and sing and at women's events. I did a lot of that women's retreats and stuff like that. So I remember feeling this kind of like, well, maybe I should do a project for myself. And it, like, I know who I am as an artist a lot more now than I did then. I know who I am as a songwriter. You know, I feel like I'm getting more life out of, writing songs like out of the overflow of, of my heart fully for myself versus trying to write a commercial song for this guy who's, you know, country radio is such a bro thing right now. It's like, ugh, I can only do that. It's something that I could enjoy, but I just wasn't, oh, you know, for years on end, it was like, okay. And that wasn't all that I was writing, but you know, I just felt a sort of a tug of like, well, maybe I could do something for myself. And I had this other author friend who was writing and we had talked about doing some events together and really thinking about, okay, how could we leverage our gifts and do something that is, makes money, that we can make some money, we can have something to offer people, you know? Anyway, it really inspired me to start writing for an album for myself. And I had a, you know, I probably had 25 or so songs that I was I was thinking about that would be fitting for that. And the vision for it was kind of coming together. And then I was like, well, how the heck am I going to pay for this? <laughs> you know, I wanted to do, I wanted to record it in Nashville. We had recorded my other one in Atlanta. I just knew a lot more. So I was able to dream a little bigger. I was playing the 30A Songwriter Festival, which is, I had played every year in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida. And I had, the first year I played it, I, they had set me up with this couple to stay in their guest house. They just housed all the artists that way. So I got to meet this couple, amazing couple, Bill and Renee in Florida. And they're like huge music fans. And Bill is just like such a sweet little nerdy guy who just loved my music. And so they came to all my shows down there. And anyway, after, I think this was like the third year I had stayed with them and played that in January. My husband was with me and I had been thinking about doing a Kickstarter, you know, raising money for a campaign for an album. And 
you know, I just felt so, I think those are great. I've given to those, but I just felt like, uh, I just didn't feel like that was the right thing for me. And I literally, you know, woke up and I remember telling my husband, I was like, I'm not going to do a Kickstarter. If this album is meant to happen, the Lord will provide and it will just happen. And I mean, I was just full of faith and like, it's going to happen. That sound means it's time to take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. If you lead an organization or a team, one of the biggest challenges you face is developing your people. Think Move Thrive is here to help you on your journey. We've developed a coaching system that integrates into your team or organization to consistently develop your employees, build trust, gain valuable feedback, and increase accountability. Leadership retreats and summits are great. We even build those custom for our clients, but they're only part of the solution because they lack consistency. Our one-on-one coaching app is the missing piece in your employee development program. We help new leaders get to know their teams. We help technical managers be more relational, and we help ensure that your relational rock stars stay organized. We developed the system for a client, and it was so successful. We created the app to help more organizations develop their people, build trust, engagement, and you guessed it, performance. For more information, go to thinkmovethrive.com to learn more about the one-on-one coaching system and start developing your team today. Back to the show. So went through our day. I played whatever show I was playing. And then that night we were hanging out in Bill and Renee's house and they had gotten home and it was late. I mean, it was probably after midnight because the shows had gone late. And Bill's like, well, Emily, when are you going to make another record? And I was like, well, it's funny. Like I'm ready for it. I just don't know how I'm going to fund it. Like I've got songs. I'm, I'm ready. I'm excited about it. And I just said that in an honest, you know, that was what was happening. And he was like, well, I'll pay for it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, you don't know what you're offering, but you know, and it, it was late. I mean, I, you know, I think they had had some drinks. And so I was just taking everything <laughs> with a grain of salt, you know, like, okay. And, um, and he's like, no, I'm serious. Write me a proposal. Let's talk about this. And so the next morning, you know, I think I was just like, are you serious? You know, this is expensive, you know, to do it right. You know, what do you, anyway, he was like, well, send me a proposal. So my husband helped me, you know, write up a proposal and, um, with all the costs. And I talked with one of my songwriter friends in Atlanta or in Nashville, Ben Cooper, he was doing some production and I felt like at this point in my career, I really wanted to have a hand in the production of it. So we were going to co-produce it. He was also, you know, not a big name producer, so I could get away with doing it for cheaper. And anyway, Bill and Renee put up 25 grand for me to do that album. So just crazy. And, you know, they won't see that money again, (laughs) but they had a blast. They came in the studio with me. They recorded some claps and like we had everything just really, I just wanted to honor them because they've just been amazing for me. And they, they did it because they love music and they love supporting artists. So it was just amazing. And I got to make all the calls like Ben and I, we hired Fred Eltringham played drums. He's Cheryl Crow's band and plays on like Casey Musgraves, all that kind of vibe. And Altry Freed, who plays guitar with Cheryl Crow, and she, he played on it, like just a great band. And that was so fun in the studio. And anyway, it was an amazing experience. And I listening back to it, I'm like, it's not commercial. It's not, 
at all what it would have been or could have been in somebody else's hands. You know, I feel like maybe it could have gone more commercial, more radio friendly, whatever. I had no plan for that. That's not probably a good thing to share on this type of podcast because it's not really smart business wise. It was definitely a heart project. I felt like God just opened doors for me to make. I just wanted it to be uplifting. It's definitely like filtered through my faith. So there's a lot of that in there, but it's Americana, you know, I got the McCrary sisters to sing on there which was amazing. Quick other little God thing about that. We had found out that the McCrary sisters, so they've sung on tons of stuff. They're a four piece gospel sister group. They've sung with Carrie Underwood, a lot of the big names on records and stuff. So I found out they were available and willing to sing on a couple of songs, but it was going to be like an extra thousand dollars or something. And at that point I was like, I don't have that. We haven't budgeted for that. You know, I came home and I was gone for two weeks. I came home right in the middle and my husband and I were walking downtown Greenville. I was like, I don't know how we're going to get this money, but we got to have the McCreary sisters. They're amazing. And literally Dallas, (laughs) I walked by a sign, Mojo's coffee shop. It's no longer there, but it was downtown Greenville. It said, open mic contest, winner gets a thousand dollars. Oh, you're kidding me. I am not kidding. My husband's like, get in there. And so if you know me, I <laughs> I hate open mic contests. They're awful. They're so bad and they're horrible to sit through. And I was just like, oh. I was like, all right, give me a guitar. Let's do it. I won the contest and I got a thousand dollars. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and we got the oh my sisters, gosh. So just so cool. I mean, so many just little God winks throughout the whole process. And I think it's really refreshing from an artist standpoint. There is, and I respect this a great deal because I feel like I came from the same cut. You get to a place where it is a music business, right? So people don't understand that. I think on the outside, sometimes it's like, this is an industry and they create things to make money. That's what they do. And so there's always this tension and you can hear it because some artists will come out with some, you know, song that's like, you know, stick it to the man. You know, they're like, you know, throwing under their own label under the bus on the song almost because they're just mad, can feel that tension between the artist and the business. And so I think that it's really refreshing that you were like, hey, I'm going to do this. It's not commercial. It's not meant to be commercial. It's meant to be an expression that I create for myself, out of myself, that I feel proud of. That's a representation of me. I think that's really, really good. And I think that it speaks a lot to progress. You know, on the last 10%, you know, we're creating, a, you know, and you're a craftsman of a trade in this situation. You, you have a craftsman mindset around songwriting. I think there's a lot that goes into that that speaks to what you just did and that being an artist on the flip side, it's not just the craft is not just about, you know, and I was sitting there talking to um, Greg Hill at the Hill management. And then he took me over to EMI and we sat down and, uh, you know, it was one of those situations like you're talking about. And he's like, well, the guy in EMI is like, well, get out your guitar, man. Let's see what you got. And so you just kind of sit in the room with this publishing company and you're like, uh, okay. And you play the songs and he's like, oh man, this is totally different. He's like, very interesting. And he's like, okay, cool. Play this, play that. You know, and you're just, you're just kind of going back and forth. We hit it off and we go back and Greg's like, Hey, he's going to give you a, rec- a songwriting deal, but let me tell you how to do this. And so he's kind of sent me down, but he just told me, he said, look, you've got to decide. He goes, I love David Wilcox. I love that. I am the hurricane song. It's in my car right now, but he's never going to be a commercial success. He's just going to tour with his album 
but he gets to create the albums that he wants to create. He's just never going to pack out a stadium. That's just what he wants to do. He has his sound, his way. He's going to do it. He said, you got to decide if you want to go into this and make money or if you want to go in this and be an artist. And that is so true. I found that to be very true. And for me, I just, you know, I got to a place where songwriting was more of a release. I like a good commercial song. That wasn't my goal. And so it's cool to hear that you had the same experience where you just got there and said, I want to create something that's a reflection of me. So well done. Well done with that. Well, and I will say, you know, I don't think anybody who's has that genuine, you know, need for creativity and artistry, like, I feel like if God gives you those gifts and talents, you aren't doing it to get rich. Because if you are, you burn out really fast. And even to, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, I'm just going to write songs for other people and make money and not have to tour and all that. And it's like, well, it's not that easy, especially in 2022 with streaming. <laughs> but I will say, you know, in hindsight, there's a lot of, I'm just thinking about the listener, if there's anybody wanting to go for it. You know, there's so many things in your life besides your job. And, you know, for me, who I am, my faith really grounds me. And, you know, I want to be around people who are going to lift me up and encourage me. And I want to be, you know, I wanted to have a family and have some balance. I remember a producer told me early on, like, well, Emily, if you want balance, you're never going to be great. And that was so discouraging to me because I was like, wait, what? I, I, I've always felt like I was well-rounded and like I prided myself in that and that I want, I wanted to be balanced. And, you know, I started looking at the Patty Griffins of the world, these songwriters that I idolized and the artists that I loved and, and they didn't have balance, but it was in a way that I was like, you know, I don't want their life. I want to be married. I want to have a family. I want to have, you know, these guys even played in the studio, Altley Freed. I remember him telling me like, man, I just crave sleeping in my bed and going to the grocery store sometimes because I'm just so tired from the road. So just to have that perspective, I mean, I look back at some moments in my days in Nashville and that I, for years, I felt like I had some regret around, like, I remember doing a guitar pull with Casey Musgraves at Warner Chapel and she had just released Merry Go Round. She had just released that. And we were talking afterwards with another friend and they were talking about going bowling and all this. And like, we exchanged numbers and I just never felt like I vibed with her very much. And I, I mean, she just really, it wasn't my people. She's an amazing artist. And, but I was always like, gosh, I should have went to hang out with them, but I didn't. Anyway, I don't know what that means, but there's other, other songwriting thing. Even just moving to Nashville, I thought, gosh, I sold myself short and whatever. But, you know, that wasn't what the Lord has for me. Like, I know 100% we're supposed to be in Greenville. I'm supposed to be doing exactly what I'm doing right now. I just think sometimes we view success as how the world views it as, you know, a measurable on a chart or getting whatever cuts or, you know, fame or whatever. And it's so not that because I have so much satisfaction and fulfillment in what I've been able to do and what God's been able to do in my life. So for whatever that's worth, like it's easy to get that regret and think like, oh, I should have sold out. I should have done that even though I didn't want to in order to gain whatever there was to gain from it. I think you're spot on with that. And I think what you're speaking to is it's a level of clarity that you had that kind of cut through the static. And the static is social media, likes and followers, it's, you know, hit records, it's the CMA awards, it's like 
all these things on these pedestals that's, you know, kind of in front of everybody that says, this is the beautiful, successful people. And this is what that looks like. And if you want to have success and be fulfilled and be happy, then this is what you need to do, whatever it takes to get that. Because unless you get this, you're not happy. And I just think that what you have and what you experienced is just a level of clarity that kind of cuts through all that static and says, no, I know what I want. This is what I want. This is what's going to give me peace. This is what's going to give me a great foundation. And I think back to my experience as well. And I came to that same point as you did in my music career. It was a situation where it was like close as I can possibly be without going full in, like all in, making that commitment. Like you said, no boundaries. Let's go full tilt ahead. But I got to see, you know, like you did, you get to see all these people and all the, you know, what's behind the curtain. I think for me, and I have so much more clarity on it now looking back than I did even in my 20s. But I think for me, I'd have been a complete train wreck. Like I think my, I think I would, even if I had been successful, I think I would completely be addicted to either drugs or alcohol. There's no doubt. My personality is, has that bent anyway. And I just would not have any kind of community or foundation or grounding or accountability in my life because you're on the road all the time, you know, around people, you would have to cope in some way. And I just think I would be unhealthy. I really like to my core know that I'd probably be in a bad way right now if I followed that through. Uh, And I don't know that I would be just like you said, have peace, you know, because it's not what I want. Now, some people, that's what they want. They're going after it. and And I don't think we're Neither one of us are saying that anybody who's made it, and I'm pumped. I'm like, I'm pumped for everybody who's put that because I know how much effort they've put into that and how much time and energy it puts into it. It's just for me, I think, and also I think for you, you just said we needed to have some real clarity. So if you're listening to the last 10% and you're trying to go and you're looking at, you know, you've got a big decision in your life to make and it's kind of left or right, you've got to try to cut through the static. And look at what the end game that you're trying to create. What's the end goal that you're trying to create? And does the reality of that line up with your decisions? Does the reality of what you're trying to create, is that going to give you what you're looking for? Because I think if I would have created that career in music, I could have been, quote unquote, successful in music, but it would not have created the reality that I really like everything that goes with it. You know what I mean? Like everything that goes with a career in music. I just don't think that would have been good for me. One question I asked myself was like, And this might sound silly, but like, let's say you want to go be a famous singer. So you're considering going on American Idol or The Voice or something like that. All right. Well, let's assume uh, for me, I I thought, let's assume you win The Voice. Do you want that? (laughs) Do you want what comes with that? You know, for me, it was no. (laughs) And I like I said, I'm a homebody. I, I do like balance. I wanted to have a family. I wanted to not that you can't have those things, but it's hard. And anyway, everything you said was spot on for sure. So now you have had this kind of library of songs that you wrote back when you were going back and forth to Nashville. And recently you got a call that an artist has picked up one of your songs. So tell us about that story. In that span of writing, as I was kind of also compiling songs that I thought I could record myself, I got a chance to write with an artist named Janelle Arthur. And she was gosh, I don't know what year, but she was like top five American Idol. One of the years. She's definitely a country artist, like amazing traditional country voice. And she was singing at the Opry a lot, just had a lot of attention in Nashville. So I got to write with her and I took her an idea that I felt like would be down her alley. And she and I have very similar tendencies vocally. And, you know, I just thought I didn't know her, but I was like, let's just see how she likes this idea. And I had written a chorus for this song called Hand Me Downs. 
we wrote the verses and we finished it together. She loved it. And that was, gosh, that was 2014, 15, something like that. She was kind of dealing with some label stuff and not sure she really wanted to have the song. And she, anyway, she never put it out. So I ended up recording it on my Light Shining album. And she sang background vocals on it. And it was so fun. It was great. And she had talked about like through American Idol and all of her ends, she had a relationship with Dolly Parton. And she had said, man, it would be awesome to have Dolly sing this with me. And I was like, that would be awesome. <laughs> but, you know, in Nashville, there's there's so much talk always, you know, there's so-and-so is going to do this. And until it's done, just don't believe it. So I was just like, oh, that's cool. Years and years went by. I started having kids and we keep in touch via social media, but I hadn't written with any of my Nashville friends in a while. And yeah, last year I was at my parents' house and I saw Janelle was putting out these obscure, her manager had sent me some paperwork about hand-me-downs that they were recording it. I sent it to my husband to print out <laughs> for me. And so I could sign it. And anyway, so we have this whole deal. I send that back. So put that in the back of your mind. So then this is like two weeks later, I'm seeing Janelle posting these like obscure things on about an announcement coming up. I told my mom, I'm like, gosh, I feel like hand-me-downs might be a single or something. I don't know what, that's cool. Anyway, the day of the announcement comes out and Dolly Parton pops up on a video and she's like, I am so happy to be singing this amazing song, hand-me-downs with my friend Janelle and y'all get it. It's going to be out, whatever. And I was like, what? Dolly Parton literally just, she sang some lyrics that I wrote. What? And the funny thing, Dallas, I called my husband and I was like, you're never going to believe this. Dolly Parton is singing on my song. And he was like, yeah, I saw it on the paperwork two weeks ago when you sent this to me. Like, did you not see that? And I was like, no, I didn't see it. And I was like, how did we not talk about this? You know, you're too busy if you like somehow missed that conversation. That's right. You missed Dolly Parton on your paperwork. Yeah. That's such an awesome thing. Last week I interviewed for the first time, I interviewed my wife on the last 10%. And at the end, I ask every guest, you know, who's somebody that you would like to have on the show? And she said, Dolly Parton. So I said, hey, look, make no promises. We'll go for it. But I think you're going to like the next guest. (laughs) So at least if we can't have Dolly Parton, we can have someone who wrote one of Dolly Parton's latest singles that she's co-singing on. So that's, um, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Everybody should go check out. They did a great job with the song. It's called Hand Me Downs and um, Janelle Arthur featuring Dolly Parton. So, and Dolly sang her butt off. She's just amazing. I feel so proud of it. And it's such a full circle moment. As I mentioned before, my dad saying, you know, when I was in high school, he said, if you want to be like Dolly Parton, you got to write more than one song, you know? So it's just another little God wink of like, you're doing it, you know? (laughs) So now I'd like to go ahead and transition a little bit. This is kind of as we round out this episode. Now, we always ask the guest on the show, if there's anybody they would like for us to go and get on the show. So who is the person that you would like to hear on the last 10%? Well, I'd love to hear tons of great people, but my immediate thought was Dabo. You're Dabo Sweeney, you're Clemson through and through. We have that in common. So tell us a cool story because you have a really unique story about Dabo. So tell us your story about Dabo. Gosh, well, he's such an amazing person and getting to experience that firsthand. We, my husband and I were trying to get pregnant. We're trying to have a baby. Took a little while and we'd had one miscarriage and had done some fertility treatment. And we're really excited that we had, you know, another positive test. And this was right around 
the Deshaun Watson, what year was that? The first national championship that we won with Dabo. We found out we were pregnant and had gotten like, you know, seen a couple of heartbeats and everything was great. We went down to, where was that? No, Tampa. It was in Tampa. So my whole family went down to see the game. We were just, if you're a Clemson fan, you know, that was just amazing. And we were just flying, you know, orange and purple, everything Clemson. So we were ecstatic. So we drove home on Tuesday and then we had another appointment on Thursday and we found out there was no heartbeat on Thursday. So that was devastating. Friday, I had to go in for a DNC. It was just really, I mean, it was obviously just a huge bummer, but it just felt, it was really heavy. And in the hospital, I didn't know this at the time, but my husband had written an email to Dabo's secretary just asking if Dabo had extra time to sign something or send me a little note, you know, of encouragement in the mail, something just because we were so thrilled for Clemson, so proud. And then we had had this devastating moment and he thought maybe that would lift my spirits. I guess he left my phone number and she wrote him back and said like, oh man, we're so sorry. I'll definitely get this to Dabo. And that was all he knew. So he didn't tell me any of this at the time, but I had the DNC, so we were just relaxing at home. The parade in Clemson was that Saturday, the next day. So we were at home watching it on TV, like we were planning to be there, but we were recovering. So just relaxing. And that night, about eight o'clock, my phone rang and it said private or unknown, something like that. And my husband's like, you should answer that. Anyway, I answered it and he says, hey, Emily, this is Dabo. And I was like, somebody's pranking me. What's happening? You know, I mean, I I didn't believe him. And I was like, what? And he said, no, no, your husband wrote the sweetest email. And I just had to call you because I just wanted you to know that to hang in there and keep pressing on and God's got you and, you know, don't give up and just was quoting scripture. And he just shared with me that he and Kathleen had two miscarriages. He shared some of the details of those situations with me and before they had their first and, you know, to just hang in there and that he shared a few other coaches had gone through some infertility. And I mean, he was just talking to me like a mentor and a friend and he was coaching me up really just like, you know, you're going to get through this and, and don't give up and God's got your back and just really, really sweet. And my husband and I were both just sobbing on the couch because it was, it was so emotional. I was just so, I felt so seen by God and just very blessed. And, you know, Dabo is, is a wonderful person, but he's just a human. So I'm just really thankful that he followed the nudge from the Lord to pick up the phone and call us because it really meant the world to us. And, and we did have more hope after that. Truly, it felt like a big hug from heaven and a, a lift. So I wrote him a thank you note. And I included a few CDs in it. And I just told him, I was like, you know, I don't know if you like country music, but this is some of my stuff. And I mean, I just wanted to send some kind of gift. I saw him at one of the ladies clinics the next year. And I was like, Dabo, it's Emily. Thank you again so much. And he like stopped everything, grabbed my shoulders and gave me the biggest hug. And he's like, Emily, I love your CD. It's in my truck. I've been telling everybody about you. And then he started telling all the ladies around me that I was a famous artist and all this. It was hilarious. So we send him Christmas cards every year. I got to see him again when I was pregnant with my second son. And so anyway, just really amazing people. Yeah, that was a special experience. We'll have to work extra hard 
to see if we can get Dabo on the last 10%. We got a few connections there, so we might be able to swing it. Maybe maybe not in the next few months because he's a little busy right now, but we'll see. We'll see what we can do. Just rounding it out, is there anything that you would like to speak to the listeners if they're thinking about going to songwriting? What's one last piece of advice that you would tell them? Maybe that you were given from Dan, what was the most instructive thing? Because what you've talked about a lot today, and I really have really liked how you've narrated the story. It's a story that just shows how you just were willing to put in the work. It was consistent effort over time. And it was just small gains. You staying in the game, just moving forward, networking, getting better at your craft. What would you say is a big piece of advice to give anybody that either is starting in the, you know, wanting us to go into the career in music or songwriting or just in general as it relates to working and fine-tuning a craft? A lot of practical things that come to mind. I mean, with songwriting in particular, treating it as a craft for sure is important. Listening to good music, maybe finding a mentor that could give you some real critique. You know, don't be afraid to get for somebody to say, hey, this is kind of cheesy. This is, you know, whatever. Some kind of good advice because that's what makes you better. And encouragement, you know, sandwiched with encouragement and critique. I have a, this is more practical things, but as you're thinking through song ideas, Shane McAnally is one of the most amazing, successful writers in Nashville. Brandy Clark, I had the opportunity to write with them and he told me, or no, I think it was Leanne Phelan told me when we were talking about getting with him, she's like, these writers, they'll do anything for a good idea. Bring a good idea. They can craft a song, but they need ideas. So, you know, if you have a concept, like write those down in your phone, try to work around them. If you get an opportunity to co-write, you know, explore that. That's a whole different type of craft that you got to learn. But, um, you know, if you don't have a good idea, then it doesn't matter how good you can craft a song. But those are some practical things. And then the business networking side of it. I mean, I think people like in general and everything like, like being around genuine, authentic people. So just be who you are. There's only, there's only one you. And that's why we need you to be you. I know that sounds cheesy, but also one thing I was very intentional about with, with all my meetings was asking people about their families and asking people about things that I knew that they would want to talk about, not in an insincere way, but in a true like effort to connect and build relationship. That's so important and not just try to go in and get something out of them because they can see through that. And then that just makes you another leech that they're dealing with, you know? So that was really important. Yeah. And just, and, and trying to stand out, you know, sometimes I didn't always do that right, but make sure with emails or phone calls or conversations that you're saying things and you're not shock factors necessarily, but you know, you're memorable. There's a lot of people that come through these people's offices all the time and you want them to remember you with a positive light if if possible. So, but yeah. Oh, I think that's great advice. Oh my goodness. I mean, we could do a whole show on just, they'll do anything for a great idea. I mean, that concept alone is just the importance of that capturing those great ideas, whether it's laying in the bed at night or in the morning in your shower, whatever it is, walking down, or if it's something you've crafted over time, those ideas are so important because if you don't have that, then it's like you said, what do you have? So Emily, how do people connect with you and your music now? What's one way they can connect with you and your music? Well, I do have an Instagram, but it's pretty much about my kids. You're welcome to come and hang out with me and my kids on Instagram at Emily Lynch Capelli. But um, my music is on Apple Music, Spotify, all that. I've got three projects up. There's a little more EP, which is old, old, but it's still sweet little songs that I love. And then the self-titled album, Emily Lynch. And then the uh, most recent project, which is 
from 2015, Light Shine In. So those are all up wherever you get music. And yeah, I so appreciate you having me. This has been really fun. I know it's been great. Thanks for being on the show today, Emily. And we look forward to hearing maybe even some more songs sometime. Maybe we get back in the rhythm of writing those songs too. But you guys check her out on Apple and Spotify. Emily Lynch Capelli, thank you again for being on the show today, Emily. Thanks, Dallas. Thanks for joining us today on The Last 10%. We hope you found today's content engaging and encouraging. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear the latest episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us so others will join our community. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. This podcast can be found globally in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Subscribe today. Plus, visit our website, join our email list, and discover resources and info for your business and team at thinkmovethrive.com. Thanks again for listening to The Last 10%.